First off, we have Richard Ebert. Uh, so I've just uh, met Richard for the first time this morning, but he is at the Premier Bible College in Sydney, as I, in Australia, as I understand it. Um, Sydney Missionary Bible... Is that right? I'm kidding. It's a Bible College. Okay, just a correction. Um, uh, Richard's married to Evelyn. He has two children. Uh, he spent 20 years with WEC uh, as a uh, church planner in, among Turkish people, gypsies and Turks in Bulgaria and Turkey. Uh, and training church planners. He's the director of the School of Cross-Cultural Ministry at SMBC, and he lives in Auburn at the moment, reaching out to uh, the Muslim population there. Thanks, Richard, for coming along. That's uh, Ray Galea. Ray, uh, who I'm guessing most of you all know in here, is married to Sandy. Uh, he's got uh, three kids, one of whom here, one grandkid now. Audrey. Audrey. Daughter-in-law, Charlotte. Very nice. Um, uh, Ray and Sandy uh, have looked after MBM for the last 23 years, uh, been doing multicultural ministry uh, in this area in one shape or another. And uh, on the end we have Peter Coe. Peter is married to Karen. They've got four kids between two and nine. I'm impressed you're even out of the house, mate. Uh, he's a first-generation Australian raised Chinese. Uh, he's a lead planner of Southwest Chinese Christian Church in Kingsgrove in 2009 that was founded. Uh, he's a member of Rice, and he's the founder of Rice Regenerate, which he might tell us a little bit about after. Uh, but just so people can get a little bit of a feel for your ministries and what you've been involved in, I might start with you, Richard, if that's all right. Uh, can you talk to us about what kind of cross-cultural ministry you've been involved in uh, the last however many years? Yeah, uh, started out knowing not anything about anything. Uh, arrived in Turkey in 1989, spent three years there, uh, basic evangelism, and... in church planting in a particularly Muslim area uh, and, and then involved in leadership development across the country uh, with just pe- churches popping up, mushrooming all over the place. It was a very exciting time to be alive. Uh, and then a few years uh, helping WEC sort of internationally with church planting, thinking through cross-cultural church planting in different contexts, mainly Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists. And uh, then the last eight years in Sydney, uh, Western Sydney particularly, uh, reaching out to uh, particularly Muslims, uh, Arab speakers, Turks, and most recently Afghans. Uh, so basically MBM started with a, a recognition that uh, the churches I was familiar with didn't have people from my kind of ethnic background, a Mediterranean, Middle Eastern people, so I had a burden for them wanting to hear about uh, Jesus. So. Uh, I knew there were like strong Chinese churches, but uh, so that really is where it kind of began. Originally, my wife and I were going to be missionaries in Malta, but um, third year at Moore College, she felt she couldn't make the jump at that stage, so I sulked for a weekend and then thought there were plenty of wogs in the western suburbs, let's go there. Um, so this is the result, this ministry is the result of my wife saying no to no, being a missionary. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Um, Anyway, I was persuaded of the homogeneous principle and wanting to sort of reach a particular ethnic group. I had Archie Poulos behind me as a model of that work in the Greek Bible Fellowship. So I started as the Maltese Bible Ministry in a Bible study in my home of about six people. And then um, uh, just God and his sovereignty more than anything, I kind of held on to that principle for most of the time. But, you know, reaching Maltese started attracting Assyrians 
then said, okay, well, let's do a second generation Mediterranean Middle Eastern vision. So that's, that was the vision. And then a whole lot of hippies and heavy metal heads, uh, uh, tattooers started getting converted. And uh, so I pushed them to the side or gave them their own service to keep them apart. And then, um, uh, then uh, as time went on, Africans joined and, and, uh, and various others. So in the end, I, you know, a man makes his plans, but God determines his steps is really the message of this story. So in the end, we've got about 60 different cultures. It's a multi-ethnic vision that we have. And... Um, been doing it for 23 years. Thanks. Peter. Yeah, I feel like, <coughs> yeah, I feel like um, where, where we are now is where Ray was probably when he first started. I mean, I came from the Chinese church. I don't even know if this is counted as cross-cultural ministry, but I have a burden to reach the growing uh, Chinese population. And when we planted, especially in Sydney South and Southwest, um, and that's how we started five years ago. But increasingly, we're, we're seeing that we have opportunities to bridge into other migrant communities and other migrant cultures. Um, so one of the, the visions we have is to now, uh, we're in the process of planting in Bankstown, which is actually not very Chinese as opposed to Vietnamese. Um, but we're half a migrant step away. So we'd like to start with that. And uh, Bankstown is also very diverse, even compared with where we're at in Kingsgrove. You've got a lot of Lebanese and, and Muslims that we would love to be able to reach. So we're hoping that God does the sovereignty thing with us as he did with MBM. You know, we have a, a target ministry at this point, um, obviously a critical mass of a particular cultural group that's been uh, great and it's been growing, but we'd love to be able to actively and also passively see God bring in uh, people from, from the nations around us. But that's sort of my cross-cultural background. So just following off on that, Peter, I'll stick with you for a second. Can you give us... Uh, bit of your thinking as to why you have uh, targeted and why you're aiming at uh, those particular groups, uh, so the uh, second generation Chinese and heading to Bankstown as well. What's the kind of gospel imperatives behind uh, what you guys are doing? Yeah, um, we're not just aiming for second generation Chinese. So when we planted our church, we had a very clear vision in mind that we wanted to reach whole families. And in order to do that, you need to reach both the first generation and the second generation plus. Um, so we, we want to see the migrant communities actually penetrated with the gospel. And to do that, you can't just, we, we didn't think you could just aim for a second generation ministry. So when we planted our, our Chinese church, we started, it's a bit crazy, we essentially planted two churches. We started two services at our public launch, a Chinese service and an English service. We had a lot of help from our planting church, um, admittedly. But that, wor- that has worked really well in terms of getting an entire, the, the, the spectrum of ages um, who could be belong to a, a part of our church, and each and each language service has its own, each congregation has its own growth dynamic, which I think is very important, so that one doesn't just become parasitic on the other, if you know what I mean. Um, and so that's been our church's vision. Now, my our thinking is that we could, uh, God willing, replicate that into other migrant communities. So we might, you know, in Bankstown, for example, begin with a, a largely second generation Vietnamese ministry. I'd like to either partner with or God willing, find first-generation Vietnamese people who could do the ministry of that, that first generation. Again, understanding that Vietnamese communities, even more so than Chinese, um, are, are tight family structures. Um, and and if, we can, if we really want to penetrate the community, we've got to think not just about second, but first-generation ministry. And, and that includes their home language, their heart language ministry. So that's sort of some of the things that are driving us. I'm not sure if it answers your question, but I think that that has given us an impetus to think um, while we want multicultural second-generation ministry, we also want to use them as kind of 
jumping boards into first-generation ministry because uh, these first-generation migrants aren't learning English. <laughs> you know, they, they, I mean, to use a bad word, it, they, they form ghettos. In Hurstville, you can get by without speaking any English because everything is in Chinese. All the signs, all the shops, all the shop owners. And so they're not assimilating. And so we've got to think about how to reach into their community. And we can only do that, I think, with a partnership between first and second generation ministries. I suspect we'll come back to the specifics yeah. of how you, you guys are approaching that a little bit later. We'll have questions from the floor in just a few moments. Ray, can I ask you, uh, for you, as you think about, as you've gone about the last 23 years with MBM and how you're going to reach the people that you both have here and a wider network, you, you made, a, I think it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek, but I'm sure there's something behind it about pushing the heavy metals and the hard rockets to one side. Have you been purposeful in uh, not segregating, but uh, how you've structured services and uh, in order to reach people for the gospel? How have you gone about that? So there's, uh, I guess, the issue of what we did and what I think I should have done, <laughs> sort of all rolled into one. Because I, keep, I, I, I was persuaded by the homogeneous principle, and it is a an effective way, and I, I think it's, it's the right principle in terms of outreach. Um, but uh, I don't think I appreciated the necessity of making that not the goal of the story. It may be where the story begins, but it mustn't be where the story ends, and that uh, if the wall of hostility has been removed by Christ, who's preached to those far off and near, uh, then I think the church has got to keep striving for reflecting the heavenly reality, which means then... Um, we, yeah, we did. I did work off the homogeneous principle. That's why when that group came, um, I, I kind of created a service for them, thinking I could reach more of them. I mean, it was still wanting to reach that group. I, I, it's not that they didn't matter to me. Um, I just had my agenda, and then God kept setting his agenda on me. Uh, in that particular case, and I'm sure it's as much to do with me than anything else, it was a good example of how the homogeneous principle imploded, and it became a culture for culture's sake, and the the vision of the mission and the kingdom had got lost in that with that group, I think, eventually. I mean, one of them's converted in here now and, uh, and uh, wanting to be a church planter, um, uh, so Jim Mobb. So, but, but really, I think we lost our way with that. But that could have been as much about the leadership failing in that more than anything. So um, lessons learned. I mean, I think if, if you're not intentional about multi-ethnic ministry, uh, we, I'll speak for us. If we're not constantly intentional about it, we will... Our, the, uh, the default position will always be it will become Anglo. Partly because in this neck of the woods, while it's very multi-ethnic, still the majority are Anglo-Saxon. Uh, evangelical Christians tend to be Anglo-Saxon. So uh, you've got a good children's youth program. You're more likely to attract at a transfer level Anglo-Saxon. So all the time you're diluting your diversity. And in the end, if, if, the, if you lose that, then any person from, a, from an ethnic group other than the dominant ethnic group of Anglo-Saxon comes in, they will automatically somehow or another feel it's not for them. Not all cases, but... Uh, and so who you have tends to determine who you attract. And so uh, probably me, you know, so having in the providence of God more than anything intentional, having a diversity early on, uh, a limited diversity, but a diversity already started the journey of helping us realize that uh, there's a place for me here. Then with that, we had to be quite in, uh, intentional. Like we have quota systems up the front, <laughs> you know, so um, I need a certain amount of non-Anglo-Saxons, not just gender. And uh, like we consciously, uh, with my magnification pastor, uh, if, if I see too many Anglos up the front, he'll get a phone call. He'll, we'll have a conversation on Monday. 
So he's, 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 he's got the vision. Because I know all of it is communicating this there, this, there is a place for me in this assembly. Yeah. And so it's symbolically uh, as well as intentionally and a whole lot of other things. Yeah. Can I just push you a little bit on that? Yeah. Uh, so one of the, the arguments for not doing the uh, homogeneous principle is to create that diversity and have that diversity uh, in order to push people towards maturity and engaging with people who are very, very different from them. Uh, so how have you, you worked through that? Uh, it's effective for evangelism to maybe ha- work through the homogeneous principle as opposed to it may be helpful for maturity to congregate people together? Um, look, it, I think it's a hard one because um, pragmatic, you know, your desire to wanting to see the lost saved is so high a value for you, you, you go homogeneous because it is more effective least in the short term. But I just don't want, I think what I'm trying to say is I don't want that to be the end of the story. So we have an Arabic speaking congregation that meets in the ministry center. Um, and um, they, they, they would be alienated by our style of service. I mean, they'll look at some of the women and think they're prostitutes, given the way they're dressed. I mean, they'll just read it, you know, they're conservative Egyptian guys who, you know, if they see much skin on a, on a female, you know, they, they just don't, they're, and you tell me they're Christian, and, and already there's a whole lot of issues there. So, you know, they're in, that, that's an, but we see that as an outreach ministry, not so much a church. Yeah. And so when they get converted, where there's an encouragement to bring them into the assembly, a, a, a much more diverse assembly. So it's really an outpost for us, not our normative way of relating. Um, now, I understand um, you've got to hear the word of God in your mother tongue. Uh, you you know, it's absolutely critical. So how we've tried to adjust some of that, we mean, people think we've got confessional booths and I've regressed to Roman Catholicism again <laughs> over there, but they're actually interpretive booths. Uh, our expression of trying to bring diversity into the assembly. So on a Sunday, we've just kicked it off, so still early days, but we'll have, uh, there's a, a bunch of asylum seekers that are put into Rudy Hill. There's 60 beds. Every six weeks they're put in. And, uh, and so we're trying to reach them with our ESL ministry but also uh, we want them to hear the word of God in their mother tongue. So one of our Tamil guys uh, interprets the sermon. They don't go in that box to hear the language. It just gets uh, relayed from there into their headsets in, in a language that they understand. So you see, uh, it's not like we're just striving for uh, bringing, the, it, trying to express the diversity of God's people. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it's a high value for us to, to sort of demonstrate that. As, yeah. And it's just a whole lot of hard work too. Can I say, to, to be honest, I don't think the ethnic diversity is the hard one. I think the class one is much harder. So if I get different ethnic groups and I've got two middle-class people from two... Di- Once I get over the English barrier, um, uh, that one's solved for me often. The much harder one is in any ethnic group, getting people within the same ethnic group to actually relate to each other meaningfully across class socioeconomically. That to me is a much harder nut to crack. I'm sure someone might ask about that a little bit later. Richard, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your work uh, overseas, but coming back as well uh, and working in Auburn, uh, what has been your, what were the things you learned or the the strategies you used overseas and how have you brought them back? Goodness, that's a lot to think about in the morning. Um, Okay, amen to everything that Ray said, basically. I really like like that idea of starting with the the principle and realising, just uh, accepting that, People don't like to become Christians if they have to cross barriers of, of ethnicity, uh, class, and everything else. 
but then going on from there and trying to reflect that heavenly reality somehow, in some ways, building ladders of fellowship across from across ethnic groups and stuff. Um, you're asking me about lessons I've learned. What have I learned? You're going to have to adapt. Goodness me. That's a surprise. <laughs> you have to adapt the way you communicate, adapt the way you share the gospel with different groups, adapt the way you disciple people, adapt the way you train leaders, adapt the way you do church. I really like this uh, thing of if, you, if it is a multicultural, multi-ethnic group, you want your leadership to be multi-ethnic. If it's not, something's, well, wrong in the end. Uh, you want, yeah, everything to reflect that multi-ethnicity. Yeah, what have I learned? Adapt, adapt, adapt. It takes time. It takes a lot of time. Reaching the first generation of any group that's vastly different to ourselves is going to take a lot of time. An example, a couple of days ago, I was introduced to a guy. We've had a great time with this group of about 20 Afghans, getting to know them really quite well. They're happy to listen to Bible stories and all this kind of stuff. But I, met, I was introduced to another Afghan guy by uh, some students at the college just a couple of days ago, and they were hoping that uh, I'd be able to follow them up and stuff. But even after three quarters of an hour of talking, and some, some, a bit, little bit in their language as well, uh, this guy was not happy for us to have his phone number. It takes time for people to trust you and to build rapport, and a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, for you as you were overseas, uh, what were the, the kind of gospel truths that you held on to, and what were the things that you worked out you needed to compromise in order to, or, or kind of be flexible on in order to reach people? Uh, Goodness me, that's a huge question. Okay, you've got thing. thirty seconds to answer yeah, this. Yeah. A simple thing. Uh, I, I went out with you know justification by faith is my main way of seeing uh, the good news about Jesus and, and the results of, of what He's done, uh, the consequences of what He's done for us, and and as we try to explain even forgiveness. Uh, to, to Muslims and guilt and forgiveness, they were, they were thinking, they, they were not connecting with it. They, they, they generally do not get that as easily as, for Turkish gypsies at least, the idea, the reality that Jesus' sacrifice for us uh, has meant that they are cleansed, has meant that they can be cleansed from their dirty hearts. So, contextualizing the way that you explain the gospel, emphasizing different aspects of it that, 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 that resonate with those people. That, that really is important. I uh, can't remember what your other question was, but anyway. That was a good enough answer, I think. Uh, it, I'm sure people can follow you up after with that. Can I uh, ask, I might go back to you, Peter, if that's okay. Um, for you, as you um, have thought about church planning initially, as you think about moving into Bankstown, as you've worked with rice as well, um, one of the, uh, the observations that's often made is that um, why is it that, that people from other cultures can't assimilate into the church plants and the existing churches that we already have? Um, why is it that you've gone down a different track to that? Yeah, I think it's, it depends on the culture you're talking about. Um, I, and I think a good, a good way of judging it is you look at... Um, how they're assimilating in general in, in the society outside of ch- uh, churches and different cultures, are, you know. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about Chinese is that I feel like I'm doing cross-cultural ministry within my own culture because there's so many brands of Chinese. You know, are you from China? Are you from Southeast Asia? Are you from Taiwan, Hong Kong? At what stage did you migrate to Australia? Um, do you live in the North Shore? Do you live in the South? Do you live... You know, it, it, all of them are different. And they also have different... Um, 
so when I, when I grew up, we were pretty well assimilated, even those of us born overseas. But nowadays, um, you go to certain schools and it's 90% Chinese. You go to certain uh, faculties at uh, university and they only, even the Australian-born Chinese only hang around each other. So, so it just depends. Whereas the, and, and for example, Korean culture is very tight. Vietnamese culture is pretty tight as well. And so um, we've got to have realistic expectations based on what, what they're like, how closely they bunch, how close are the family and the traditional structures as migrant groups in Australia. And I, and I suspect they differ. You know, to certain degrees along the spectrum. And so to expect, for example, um, uh, a, a culture group that's very, very tight, um, living in suburbs where you know, they, they either form a majority or they uh, are sort of in an enclave, um, to just assimilate, um, even the second generation, just to assimilate, just even though their English is perfectly fine. I think that's, again, not recognizing um, the reality uh, and, and I think it, it's incumbent on us to figure out, and this is where the homogeneous unit principle does help, it's incumbent on us in terms of outreach to go where they are, you know, to create structures and churches where at least the starting point is, okay, I'm, I'm willing to get into your culture um, to make sure that I understand that it's not that easy for you to come to me. Um, and then I really admire what MBM is doing at some point within uh, the greater church that you're a, a, a part of to... To, to then introduce them to the idea, well, the gospel now calls us to, to love and serve other cultures and to cross our own cultural barriers. But I think that initial step um, to expect that, you know, if I start a church and it's just going to be people like me, whether you're Anglo or an, of an ethnic group, that's just going to immediately pick up people from the, the neighborhood so that your church is going to resemble the bus, you know, um, in terms of the diversity of your suburb. I think it depends on what suburb and ethnic groups around it. I think it, it's, it's going to be a hard ask. Right, can we hear a little bit about your 23 years at MBM, um, what you think the, the biggest mistake you've made is in multicultural ministry, what you do differently, uh, but also perhaps the, the thing that you've, you've worked out, or maybe you did it first time, uh, that you realised that works, that's right, I should have done that from the beginning. Um, I think you've just got to keep preaching a vision of inclusiveness um, as part of your DNA. We taught with that then, the, the 1 Corinthians 9 principle, especially early on, was very vital to us. All things to all men, so by all possible means we may save some. And that we bend for them. And, uh, and so we've just not, we can change things fairly easily, I think, and we don't kind of get ruffled. Especially geographically, we were moving all over the place, partly because of buildings getting too small and having to move to the next stage. So that sense of we change for others, we do what it takes, it kind of needs to be bred into the DNA early on. And the celebration of, for us, you know, celebration of diversity and, and that their people's ethnicity is their story, is part of who they are. And if you're part of a dominant culture, you tend to forget that because you're celebrating your own kind of cultural diversity all the time by best being you, you, you know. But, but uh, you know, I've got a people always say, yeah, you're Aussie, right? But yeah, there's a story, everyone who says they think, uh, every time you say that to me, I think you don't, still don't know me. Because I have a, another story to tell that includes a, a storyline that goes back to, you know, not just Malta, but my world here with, you know, 100 first cousins. And um, <laughs> makes the gatherings a bit of a pain and keeping up with the rels that much harder, but great gospel opportunities. So uh, kind of constantly telling people's stories, celebrating it. So you've got an inclusive mindset, as well as being able to laugh at yourself. 
other thing too is the beauty of diversity when it's gathered together in the name of Christ, it gets you to think kind of, um, you, you tend to see your blinkers a lot more. It, it, it kind of it exposes a blind spot you don't see. So I remember one time when uh, we had a church plan in Fairfield and uh, a lot of Middle Easterns got converted and it kind of grew to 80 really quickly just from conversion growth. And then I remember we had a Lebanese, uh, I'm just trying to think, Maronite, Catholic maybe, uh, an Egyptian, Coptic, um, you know, a Greek Orthodox. There, there was diver- ethnic diversity and, and diversity in, in kind of church traditions. And Good Friday was around the corner, and they and they just kept talking about what needed to, what you must do on Good Friday. And one guy said, "Oh, you, you know, you can't have meat on Good Friday." And the other said, "No, no, no, you, you can't shave on Good Friday." No, no, no. Now the other guy said, "No, you can't wash on Good Friday." And by the end of that discussion, I think it became very obvious what was the word of God, and what was tradition. It sort of did its own work for you, and um, and so. So telling those stories uh, is, is important. For us, persecution was a big issue, especially early on. Not so much now, but early on, when you had people uh, changing their... Because religion and culture is so tied up, it's, an, it's part of your culture, that when you change your religion, you are actually... It always looks like you're abandoning the family and you're denying who you are. So to be Maltese is to be Catholic. Hence, my mum cried every day for two years when I stopped being. Um, now, of course, that's true. Andrew told the same story when he violated middle class values, Anglo middle class values, and uh, went into ministry. So it's, it's for all of us, persecution. But, but there was a high level of it. People wouldn't come to people's weddings. Parents wouldn't come to people's weddings. Uh, threats of disinheritance. Um, first Maltese girl got converted, got punched by her father. You know, that sort of... And so uh, that story, those stories need to get shared. And the Bible tends to come alive then because it's, you know... It, it, the New Testament's proclaim uh, the Christianity of the New Testament is a persecuted people, and so you tend to connect in ways that perhaps uh, you might not otherwise. So, kind of airing those stories and talking about it becomes very important. So there's a constant dialogue happening. Yeah. Uh, so you're talking about the struggles and they're identifying w- with that, and uh, your testimonies include persecution. Uh, they were really important in the early days as well. But I can't remember your original question, so I just started going down a road that I wanted <laughs> to say. It's much better answer my question, that's fine. Um, Richard, so you've, you've worked overseas uh, with Muslims. Uh, you're back in Auburn at the moment as well as lecturing, you're, you're working, trying to reach that group. What are the differences? What have you done differently over here? Are, are they different? Um, yeah, how have you kind of contextualised within Australia to a similar group that you're working with overseas? You've got hardly 20 seconds for this one, actually. No, so uh, Hardly at all. Um, I'm going to pick up on what Ray said. That issue of identity is absolutely key. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. If you're working with people from other religious backgrounds, as people come to faith in Christ, they're trying to negotiate their identity. Who am I? Can I still be part of my family? The family's also trying to work out how, how weird are you going to become um, if you become a, this follower of Jesus in this certain way. Uh, it's massive, and people oscillate, particularly Muslims, coming to faith in Christ. They'll look one way with their group of Christian friends and, and, and be acting a diff- completely different way in their family, and they're trying to work out, who am I? How do I work this followership of Christ out? Um, 
and, and similarly, people coming from Buddhist or Hindu backgrounds, similar negotiation of identity. So I don't think there's huge differences in the first generation, at least. Working with the first generation here, I'm not sure we've contextualized our approach hugely. I think Peter's right that there's not a lot of amount. Do we want people to assimilate? I don't know. But uh, they're not uh, large numbers of people. I'm thinking of the Muslim population, the first generation, are not coming here for themselves. They come for their children. So they're mainly relating to uh, people from the same ethnic group, speaking that language, and it, it demands a huge, what's the word, uh, crossing of, of boundaries and barriers to, to reach out to them, and adaptation. So what have you been doing? We, uh, for many, many years, we've, we've done a lot of door knocking and just offering people, very simple, just offering people a, uh, a New Testament in their language, uh, or Jesus film, and then going back to those who've been interested. There aren't huge numbers, I have to say. It's not, not enormous numbers of people. Um, letterbox dropping, being at festivals, uh, Muslim festivals, and uh, having there a table, uh, the ho holy teaching table, which is just the, the, the books, um, uh, the Bible and the Quran. And uh, engaging people in various ways, just trying to do abundant gospel sowing and finding those people who are interested. This year, we've particularly focused in trying to go deeper with uh, people who we've, we've got to know, a uh, smaller group. And the last two or three months has been particularly exciting with a, a group of uh, Hazara Afghan refugees who are hungry for English, hungry for friendship, and at least willing to uh, consider or, or hear about uh, stories uh, from the Bible and that happens, yeah, someone's living room, about 15 of them every week listening to stories and a little bit of the weekends too. And yeah, uh, we don't know wh where that will go. There's one or two who have already in their hearts rejected Islam, but where they'll settle, we're not sure yet. But certainly very ex an exciting time. That is exciting. Look, we might uh, open the floor for questions. We've probably got about half an hour, I think, for questions. So are there mics? Can I ask God? Uh, Toby, you're a good man. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, guys. Um, what I've observed is that uh, you've each, you've each uh, started with the, homo the homogeneous principle. Uh, would you, what would you recommend uh, if you wanted to start something immediately multicultural. Would you recommend it? And if you did, uh, what systems and structures would you set up in the beginning? Okay, so my name's Winston, looking to plant in Maryland. Yeah, I, I do think it probably depends on the group you're trying to reach. So Peter's right, you've got some very tight cultures that, whose language is not, first language is not English. And you've got to go in with people who know that language, who are part of that people. I mean, it's, it, that's the ideal there. I mean, unless you get that wonderful Anglo who's prepared to, you know, learn the language. I mean, they're all important, but you need, you know, the like attracts like. You've just got to keep remembering, um, you know, there's always a double conversion that happens when you, go, when you, come, you come to Christ and then you join the culture, the ethnic culture of the people who are part of that church. And you forget how hard that second part is, and it's often unsaid. So, um, you know, when it's coalface evangelism and, and outreach ministries, and, and I understand it takes 
a long time to work through that journey. I think you, you, you need a group that reflects the group you're trying to reach. But if you're, but you know, with those high, you know, apart from the language issue, if you can hit the deck running on a multi, multi-ethnic platform, I think that's ideal. And, uh, and that means picking your team, look, consciously looking for diversity in your team. Um, because you're making a theological statement in your diversity. Uh, that, for those who have eyes to see, can see, wow. I still remember my sister coming along, who wasn't a Christian at the time, seeing the diversity. I mean, at that stage, it was when we had the hippie. It was a subculture thing. There was a guy who was a tattooist in our church with the body piercing and all that, talking to a guy who was a clerk from the water board, a 50 and middle class. There was age difference, subculture differences. And she said, right, I don't think I'd ever see that. She mentioned the two guys, Paul and Aaron, um, Ash talking, and she said, I don't think I, would, I could ever, see, I can't imagine me seeing that conversation happening anywhere else but here. And she took, that's, that was a sermon all by itself. Um, and so I got, there's a gospel apologetic here that's right under our nose. And my fear is the world's going to wake up one day and discover that apart from when you do need language-centered specific ministries, they're going to wake up and say, hang on, you guys keep talking about your one in Christ. But the most segregated time in the week is on a Sunday morning where the Anglos go to Anglo churches, the Philos go to Philo churches, the Samoans go to Samoans. I think because our culture has shifted now. So our whole culture has moved and there's a danger we're going to get left behind in some senses. Mindful of, I think, the points Peter make, which I think are legitimate. So we've got to watch that and I I think it's it's going to rear its head sooner or later. Um, They're going to say, guys, you talk inclusive uh, and uh, you're one in Christ. But your expression of it in any meaningful sense is actually not there, except maybe when you go to a Katuba conference. And I think if you're going to go down this path, you really want to not only push family, but be family. Yeah. And for these people from you know, basically non-Western, non-individualistic cultures, that means hanging out together. That means a time together. That means more than the two hours or whatever it is on a Sunday. That means eating together. Uh, I know it's a big ask, but I think we've got to at least move in that direction a lot. Um, because that, I think people can connect with that and see this is a new community I can belong to and it's worth it. Like, obviously Jesus is worth it, but being part of this new community is worth it as well. Hey, uh, Jordan from Salt Church in Wollongong. Um, I've just got a question, um, especially maybe for you, Richard. When you evangelise to Muslims, um, the question was asked before by Derek about uh, what truths in the gospel you hold really central and what you kind of move a bit on. When you are explaining to somebody about the character of God, to what extent will you, uh, you know, use the already laid foundations of the Muslim concept of God? Like, will you, you know, directly say, like, talk about Allah and, um, and for, you, for you other guys, like, is it the same kind of scenario? Do you have to uh, speak... Uh, to people when you're talking about the character of God using the language of God that they already understand even though there are differences there. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, if you're asking do you use Allah, absolutely. Or Tanra in Turkish if they haven't used Tanra. Or Huda in whichever language. Yes, absolutely. You start with where they're at. Start with, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a big debate about that. But basically Allah as it's used by Arabic Christians and has been even before Islam, yeah, absolutely, no problem. Obviously there's a different conceptualization and, and that will come as people are exposed to more of the scriptures. 
but yeah, start with the Actually, just on that, um, Maltese is a Semitic language, but the only Semitic language with an English alphabet. But I grew up hearing God is referred to as Allah. So it's, it, it's actually Arabic. It's not Muslim. It's just that predominant Arabs are Muslims, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like God, really. You know, you can fill into that three words, three letters, you know, heresy or biblical truth. Yeah. Um, Dave here from the Lakes. Um, just picking up on what Peter said about a heart language. Uh, and then, Ray, you, you talk about the booths during your, your preaching. Um, so the translation's happening live. How does that work for people of other languages in terms of the singing, the, the broader experience of church life, do people of other languages feel a little bit shortchanged uh, in that regard? Yeah, for Ray, yeah. Dave, um, I think we're only skin deep. We're multi-ethnic. I don't know how multicultural we are, if you know what I mean. Like, there's one thing, like Richard said, gather together, hold hands, swing, sing Kumbaya. That's, that's one thing. <laughs> and even in different languages. Uh, there's degrees in which integration happens. Uh, you know, is it expressed in leadership? Uh, is it expressed in fellowship in people's homes? Will it find itself in mixed marriages at the end of the day? We've got, we actually do have lots of mixed marriages, but they're only within a certain boundary of ethnic groups. And there's certain ethnic groups where it probably is not going to happen for some time. But there are little clues as to whether how much the walls break down. And, and I've got to say, there's a difference between preference and prejudice too. You know, like, I don't think it's a sin to have preferences in terms of these sort of things. But, uh, so your question is, uh, how, how, how much is it, is it expressed and how meaningful is it? And do people feel alienated? Sorry. Oh, yeah. Right. See, that's a good example of, I don't think we've gone far enough. So we need to have some of that diversity expressed, even though it's symbolic, because the reality is, um, you know, the, we have English ESL. For, for a migrant to come to Australia, learning English is what empowers them. That's got nothing to do with Christianity or anything. That's just got to, they will feel more empowered in the culture, uh, in the language of the culture that's in, in the dominant language of the culture that they're living in. And so... We're, they, they're, they're needing to move down that road anyway, and they will say that amongst themselves. So we provide that interpreter booth so they can hear the word in their mother tongue, but we provide English as a second language to uh, teach them English to be kind of part of Australian culture where the dominant language is, the language of communication is English, which that needs to be on their agenda, you know. And it needs to be on their agenda for all sorts of reasons. Not the least is they, they want to, oh, we want them to communicate with their brothers and sisters and their citizens of this land or hoping to be. Um, so that's still a trajectory they're on, but it just takes time. And, you know, you get a 70-year-old Afghan coming in where you can kiss learning English as, as, uh, in a meaningful way. That's, that's, you know, that's not going to happen. And that's why you need to be able to relate to them and as, do as best you can, be inclusive, but also create a situation where they're fellowshipping amongst their own with, uh, with Christ at the centre as well. Yeah. But I don't think we do that well. I think we do it skin deep. And I feel like if you ask me what's on our agenda for the next few years, that's on our agenda, making it real, not token. It's easy to put a sign up in different languages, 
uh, that says welcome. Gee, it's much harder at morning tea even to get people breaking out of their clique groups, which everyone knows anyway. Everyone got clicky groups at morning tea. Ours just gets ethnically defined sometimes or class defined. Yeah. Can I just sorry? Can I just add one thing maybe to consider is um, I, I know with uh, the, the Chinese group, probably with the Koreans as well. There's there's a real heritage um, of of locally like Chinese Korean produced music. Um, and so I, I think worship in song is one of those things where it's, it's not just understanding the sermon, uh, that, that expression, because it's a heart, it's an emotion, it's an effective thing. Um, and there's, there's, there's now, you know, stacks of stuff coming from Asia. Um, I, I, I don't know, I can't speak for the other cultures, but for, for Chinese and Koreans especially, because the church scene is quite, actually quite strong in some of those countries. Where, where a lot of these songs are, act, are produced locally and really tap into some, I mean, they're, they're contextualized. Some of the melodies are very Asian. And uh, I just know that uh, for, 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 for a lot of Chinese worshippers, that, that, that really resonates with them. Um, so as much as, you know, maybe there's that tension, I want to learn English and I want to, um, there's also, I just want to be able to sing. So we've got in our English ministries, some who are actually more comfortable in Chinese, but they come because they enjoy the, the you know, mingling. But... I think at the end of the day, if they could learn some or sing together with brothers and sisters in their mother tongue, that would add a dimension to their own spiritual walk. So I don't know how that plays into this sort of thing, and I don't know how unique that is, particularly because Chinese and Korean churches back in China and sorry Asia and Korea actually have a strong production now, you know, and and whether that affects things. Yeah. Uh, hi, Jim from Wollongong. Uh, the area I'm trying to reach at the moment, it's about one quarter Macedonian Serbian, but uh, no one's moved from either of those countries for at least 20 years. So it's old stock that came over 50s and 60s. Uh, and I'm trying to work out how to reach them. The issues Ray talked about I've seen. So I've got two Macedonian ladies in my congregation, both of whom have been disowned by the Macedonian community. I've had one Serbian visit. Uh, and I'm trying to think, how do I, how do I grow them in Christ? So, so far I've, I've taken a tact of saying, so to the Serbian lady, uh, you know, I want you to come here, I want you to sit under Christ, but I, I, you know, I still expect, you know, continue at your Serbian Orthodox Church, continue there in the morning, come and see us in the afternoon. But I, I'm just not sure whether that's a good approach or not, I'd just like to hear some wisdom on that. Oh, did he? No, why did you say Richard? Okay. Uh, I'm just using a kind of cross-cultural approach here, and I think one thing you could do is is think family. So I don't know what, what who, who's left of her family, but if you could just visit her in her home and even just say, can I meet some of your friends or relatives or whatever, I think that would be a way to go. One, in understanding her context or the different contexts of those three people, but also in helping even some of those relatives see uh, now, this is, these, these people aren't so weird after all, maybe. And it would be a journey, but think family. They're not just individuals. They're, they're members of, of, of families who are usually really closely bound up. And if there's any way for you to, to, to be in there, get to know them, them get to know you, that would be a great way forward. And on the way, you might discover whether or not the whole continuing at the Orthodox Church is sort of okay or not. My, my, my impression is it, it's fine, but, uh, but other people might, you've probably got a, 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 um, a perspective on that. Uh, I mean, I think the, I, the these are Macedonian ladies who are converted, who's I can't, I can't. So, uh, with the Macedonian ladies, there's two who are solidly converted. 
one of whom has been divorced and so she's really on her own. She doesn't have a family connection. Right. The other Macedonian lady is very solidly converted uh, and uh, her family is has been here long enough, second, third generation, that they've rejected all religion and they're quite anti. Uh, the Serbian lady, I don't know yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think see those ladies as an opportunity to do ministry into that community. Really, they're your, they're your outposts and um, meeting up with them together and then trying to see how they can then witness to their community. So we've got a fellow family, that Filipino family, converted up the road and I uh, took the opportunity to do some Bible study with them last... I had a bit of a window and I just wanted to catch up with them. Partly they're in my street and Rudy Hill's a lot of Filipinos. So I'm, all, I'm forever thinking now that might be a platform on which to reach other Filipino families and networks of relationships. So, um, so what you're doing is you're taking the gospel into their world and through that maybe they're not going to be alone. God will raise others for them to fellowship with as well as also trying to reach that community for, for Christ. Um, so I kind of, rather than see how can I include them, actually go out and try to make them outposts of, for, for, for mission as well. And you're kind of, you're kind of hitting two, two things at the same time in the process. Um, yeah. Can I also put a caveat here? Um, I, I think um, if, if you're belonging to a particular church, because I have a friend, he's second generation Australian-born Chinese. He joined a church in his local suburb, and, uh, you know, even though I guess the suburb is, is, is more diverse, the church is very Anglo, and the, but the church has always wanted to reach out to, to Chinese people. So he comes, and uh, because he's pretty Aussie, um, immediately the minister's like, all right, you're going to be our... Uh, do you know what I mean? And I, and I think for him, it was like, actually, I, I don't really see my ties to the Chinese community that greatly. But it, it's, it, it, at one point, he feels a bit used. Do you know? And, 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 I, and, I, and I think that can be overcome. But I, I, I would think that if the culture of the church as a whole is, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, we're trying to empower you to reach your cultures, subcultures, your communities. So you're not singling out you know, the, the person you, you now see as a platform. For, for, for an outreach. Um, so with, with all those things in mind, I think we just have to sometimes be a little bit careful because I think we're... Re- I know if, you know, if I get a Viet in my congregation, I'm like, yeah, that's it. You're, you're the guy, right? You're going to plant my church. Um, but yeah, I think I've got to be careful that I'm, I'm not just communicating that to the, to the... But the whole church's culture as a whole is we're, we're, we're here about serving and reaching the world around us and you're just a little part of that and we want to help you do that better. Yeah. That's a very important point. Can I just pick up on something that uh, I know you mentioned about families? It seems really crucial to outreach to engage with the family as a whole, since it's really tight unit. Um, as you have gone about evangelism and reaching families, is there a particular part of the family that you aim for, or is it whatever contact you have that's having you You know, just on this, I asked a Samoan lady, I said, uh, Alyssa, how many people go to your church? She goes to a Samoan church. She said, oh, about 32 families. Imagine doing your counting on the basis of family units. That's, uh, you know, there's, no, there's none of us who would actually say we've got eight, 32 families. We go straight to the individual because we're Western, uh, we're individualistic. And all of a sudden in that is a whole cultural world that's so different from... You know, take the islanders. I've got a bunch of Cook Islanders. And um, uh, it's, you have to do everything family. Um, I'll tell you how different they are. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I wasn't preaching, so I took the opportunity of going and having conversations out with the ladies in the foyer and stuff. And uh, Wendy's there, one of the Cook Island ladies, and she's got a baby that's about two months old. I said, Wendy, did we miss this birth? Oh, she said, no, no, I didn't give birth to this child. This is, 
oh, who is it? She said, it's mine. I said, where did it come from? She said, oh, my auntie gave it to me. I said, what was that? And I, and I, and I she said, yeah, and I gave my baby to my cousin. Uh, it probably was out of wedlock, I think, about seven years ago. Because the whole kind of paradigm we work on is different. Yeah. And so for them, uncle, father is so similar, same. You, you, you know, it's not legally done, but this child is kind of moving from this family. To, and so they know who their fam- parent of origin is, but they just, just get swapped around, not for like a week or a month, but actually you actually are taken into another family. And, uh, and so I asked Alyssa, who's been teaching out, and that's part of what you do, you, you just need to learn about cultures. So Alyssa, who used to be with us, who went back to her Samoan congregation because they really needed a whole lot of help and she did the right thing by doing it. But we got her back to teach us about Islander culture and just talk about this issue. And it's, you know, she said, my dad, uh, both his sisters said to him, you know, we'd like, because she had 16 in the family, we, you know, we'd like, because uh, they couldn't have kids, he, the, the, the sisters couldn't have kids. So they wanted a couple of his kids. And, uh, and he held his ground on it. But to this day, I don't know whether it was just his own affection for his kids or it was a theologically, because he was a pastor, and, I, and I could, he's passed away, so I can't work out. I don't know what the missionaries did, because I asked her about that, you know, because Cook Islanders were evangelized, you know, in the 19th century. So I, um, so, but that's a reminder to us of how, if I'm working with Islanders, it's just getting the names of who belongs to who can be a difficult, and even that category is a different category. And if I want to work with any of them, it's got to be with who, who, uh, where the power brokers are in the family. Sometimes it's a matriarch, sometimes it's a patriarch. Um, and try, you, you work collectively, n- not individually. It, it just won't work. And that varies from culture to culture. Now, the good thing about this, when you have strong extended family lines, is that you get a conversion happening and, it's re- and, it, and the transformation's welcomed. Whew, you'll get a whole family or a series of families. So... Those Assyrians, we had about three or four family lines just converted, just one after another, really quickly. But when persecution hits, it's ten times harder because their, their friendships are their family groups. There's not a distinction. And then the opposite hits, and, and uh, you're, you're having to really provide an alternative world for them because it's a much greater loss than it might be for, you know, for, for others. I think this is the biggest, my biggest blind spot and my biggest weakness in cross-cultural ministry, and still is. Like, I can talk about it, but actually doing it, taking the opportunities when people say, oh, when people talk about members of their family or maybe invite you to something that involves the family, I, I, there's several times I haven't taken those up, and that's, that's not been a good thing. Uh, and then just asking people about their family, expecting the gospel to spread down lines of family, and uh, encouraging people to share their faith with their families, all that kind of stuff, just thinking family and everything we do in cross-cultural ministry, yeah. Uh, can I just add one thing? Because family lines are so strong, when, you, when you're trying to reach international students, um, it's very important for the church to be that family because that speaks so loudly to them. And, and to be family, you know, I, I felt the difference. I spent two years at, at one of the uh, churches at Fairfield that um, Ray had something to do with. And, uh, you know, you eat together, you hang out together. There's a lot of re- just time where you're not doing anything together, and, or mostly around food. Um, whereas I went to an Anglo church for, for the last two years of my student ministry, and yes, you were invited over for Sunday lunch, but it was sit-down lunch with doilies and the Sunday roast, and after that it was everyone go home. It's, it's, it, you know, so we, we can have the semblance of providing family because we're friendly and polite, but it's very different when you're from an ethnic culture. 
family is we go on outings together, we hang out together, we, we have lots of social time, just no time, you know, no, no structured time together. And that means a heck of a lot for those who come, um, who might not even be international students, but come as refugees or asylum seekers and then have their family with them uh, to be that family. And when that happens, that speaks so loudly to them, the gospel becomes visible to them. And, and it's no surprise that a lot of them get converted when they've been welcomed like that. Because you're thinking family, even though you're not, you know, they haven't got their family there. And so, the, and the issue there is, if you're middle class, then you diarise your time, and you want to know when it's beginning and when it's ending, and that's where you get the clash. You see, and that's, and you see, that's a class. Then, then you get the merging of two issues: ethnicity and class. And um, you see, with my relatives, inviting them over for a meal is, is a joke. You just don't do it. You lob on their place, unannounced, unprepared, and then out will come the banquet. You know. That's how you love them. Like their rebuke of me is, you never come over. But they mean any time, any day, but you never, you don't, you don't, rather, I've invited them, we've gone out, but that for them is a mark of love. And it's just reading the culture on its own terms. Yeah. Yep, um, Samuel from Toowoomba in Queensland. I, my question is kind of for Richard, but um, how do you go about engaging those, um, the older Muslim Families. You talked a little bit about engaging Muslim students, but what about the, the families as a whole? Oh, look, there's no, there's nothing, there's no magic here, and we're mainly dealing with first generation, first generation, uh, not not students, but all, older people. Uh, it's hanging out. It's being willing to sit in silence for ten minutes, uh, having talked about stuff, because they're happy with it. It's okay. It's fine. But you're together. There's no magic. There are no rules. But if you've got the heart, you, it will it will happen. They can see, people can read the heart. It might take them a while, but they'll they'll see. Oh, this person is really interested in me. Interested in knowing about my story uh, and what I believe. And I, they're going to they're going to ask you what you believe, and it'll come out in the wash. But it is a journey, and it just takes time. There are no special rules in terms of making contact. You start with hello. It's as simple as that. And you, and you don't stop there. When they say no English, you try everything because there's usually some there. <laughs> and, and maybe a younger guy, maybe a family member will start interpreting and you'll start to have a bit of a, uh, a conversation. But you just, if you've got the heart, it, it is possible. It can be done. Uh, yeah. Can I just, I, I just think uh, your teaching has to reflect this. So... On the one hand, you want to talk about, I think Mikey might have touched on it, uh, the fact that um, the notion of culture is not quite the same as theologically the world. Uh, and so culture has within it, you know, good, neutral things to celebrate and enjoy as part of God's good creation. Um, but you need to be able to, on the one hand, allow people to feel comfortable in their own skin. Like, that's really important. So, and that needs to be taught. Because, I mean, for me, I ran away from my culture because I was in the receiving end of prejudice at school and I wanted to drop the A on Galea and I could turn into a gale and maybe I can be one of you guys. And you, would, and you, wouldn't, and you wouldn't say, well, at least you don't look like one. Um, so, you know, so there was a part of kind of feel, get, helping people to feel comfortable in their skin, whatever that is. And that, that's as much celebrating Celtic background as it is anything else. But the other thing is realising that there is diversity... Um, and recognising that. And then at, then at the same time, 
what we share is one human culture. We're exactly the same in all the key issues. Creation, fall, you know, made in God's image, redemption. And those things have got to keep being preached as well. So that you're dealing, you're always speaking to the racist heart in every one of us. Um, and the fear heart. And so those things have got to be on our agenda. Um, and not get our theology from Ray Hadley or talk, you know, shock jocks, which uh, especially the older generation tend to. So you're creating a theology of culture and humanity, what we share in common, what we don't, and it needs to be illustrated ethnically, but it needs to be illustrated, I think, class-wise as well. Um, I think there needs to be more conversations about the differences amongst classes and not moralize. I, I, I told the story this morning to someone. We've got a guy in our church, and uh, he wanted to... You know, one, what a, a core value for a middle-class person is that they're aspirational, more so than working class, okay? And certainly, by the way, ethnic cultures are more aspirational than others in terms of education and so forth. So one of my guys is an Assyrian, and he, he says to his son uh, what he got for... what mark he got for school. And he said, now, son, what I want you to do is I want you to find the average mark... And I want you to add one, uh, one, one, one mark higher than that, and then I'll be happy with how you go. Now, you say that to a middle-class person, and it's like you've just said you've just slept with their wife. You know, It's like, whoa. Well, that's a cultural value. Now, uh, you may want to say it's a wrong, right? And, and, but all of a sudden, you, oh, right, okay, that's a value that I have as a middle-class person. And then I get to objectify it and then look at it through the lens of Christ. So we just need to do, I think, a bit more hard thinking. Because forget the ethnic thing. I think there's, you know, we need to just get beyond middle-class churches. Look at us. We're essentially white Anglo-Saxon, and we're going to produce middle-class churches. That's all we're going to do. And uh, there's a lot of people who don't fit that demographic in Australia, and if we're committed to the gospel going, yeah, we've got a lot of hard work to do. Yep. However we do it, whether it's homogeneous or... Yeah. Can I say something more? Just going back to your question, I'm thinking on the run very slowly. Um, identifying with them, that means living where they are, if all, all possible, living close by, uh, spending time, uh, looking for felt needs, seeing if there are some ways, some simple way you might be able to serve them. It speaks to the heart. People think, oh, this person is really interested in me. There's a whole lot of things on their side as well, like, you know, we've come to this country and no one really welcomes us and people talk behind our backs and all that kind of, and lots of stuff does go on, especially for covered women, that's really awful, like terrible. They hear people mumbling and murmuring and saying all kinds of terrible things. So once they see someone who's actually showing some friendship, that's different. Um, yeah. Hi, yeah. Um, I'm Mikey from Grace Point Presbyterian big fanboy of all you guys up there. Um, this one's a quick one, for maybe for Ray, but also for all of you. But how did you break the mold of the HUP? Like you started with that Maltese and then you said the hippies came in. But how did you assimilate them into the, the community? Um, or like say, so I came from Badly. a Chinese church background and I got converted in a Chinese church and I've basically been in the Chinese church and we have sometimes Italians walk through the door or Aussies walk through it all, but they never feel like they, they never stay. So how do you get them to... Yeah. Look, it's very hard because I assume the dominant ethnic group is Chinese. And it's just very hard. No matter how friendly you are, you can always feel... You are in, there is a, there, you've become a little missionary. You've actually now entered into another world. And, um, except when missionaries go overseas, they just go to... You know, missionary training and they've made a decision to go and, and do you know what I mean? There's a whole lot of things you think, I don't, now a lot of people don't feel part 
You know, I mean, isn't the battle we have at church anyway, people feel like they belong. Like, man, same ethnic group, same demographic, you know, twins, uh, same womb, and they still don't feel like they belong. Oh, I don't You know, it's hard work and just, it's, it, it, it just, it's creating cultures of inclusion, teaching people how to have conversations with you. Sometimes you have to strip it right back, you know. That when you go and welcome someone, don't go on your own, go with somebody else and, if you, you know, just almost go through the basic elements of how to welcome someone and assume nothing. And, keep, and, and when someone does it well, kind of honour that and celebrate it so that they know that you value the fact that they're, they're going out of the way to be welcome. And then hear what it's like for the Italian or the, the, not, the person from the non-dominant ethnic group to have a voice and speak. And, uh, uh, yeah. and you know, sometimes they, they, there's whinges and they need to be rebuked as well. <laughs> they need to have a thankful heart. And, yeah. Yeah, uh, Jack from uh, Queensland. Um, just was wondering about... What, what do you do to, it's wonderful to have all these migrants that you're reaching and, and they've been reached with the gospel and yet we have, you know, millions and millions of Aussies that are doomed for destruction and what, do you, what have you found helpful to allow the migrants that you have reached with the gospel to then reach Aussies for Christ? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We haven't seen enough people come to faith to, from Muslim backgrounds to be able to say. And I think Iranians, Iranians will have an effect, are having an effect, will have much more in the coming years. Uh, but it, it, comes out, it comes out of what the Lord's doing in them. They just can't help but share their faith with people. But in any of the other groups, I can't think of any other groups having any effect on on uh, white Aussies, as it were. So You know, I think, uh, I, I think of one guy... He is, to be fair, he, he sort of comes with, he's really attached to another church. He's the brother of a guy who comes to our church, and he's an outstanding evangelist. He'll, he'll evangelize anything that moves, you know. It doesn't matter what ethnic group. Uh, he, he's just there for Jesus. And, and once the penny drops for anyone who loves Jesus, um, they, you know, they will, the, 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 the ethnicity of the person is really is secondary. Um, the, it just so happens that a lot of people in who are, who are in tight communities, their social world, their family world is one dominant ethnic group. So most, other than maybe work and maybe the neighbour, but the neighbour's likely if they're Chinese in a Chinese-dominated community, likely to be Chinese anyway. It's not likely that they're going to have too much access outside of that world, even in multicultural Australia. Probably the workplace and workplace evangelism is where it's more likely to happen. Uh, and at that point, it's as, it's as true for anyone, isn't it? The person who grabs hold of the gospel is committed to wanting God glorified and the lost uh, saved. Um, yeah, quite an interesting question because I'm involved in a, a very Asian uh, youth movement called Rice, um, and I think I think it is possible amongst um, two particular groups. I'm thinking of the Chinese and the Koreans. And the Korea is already the second largest sending missionary sending force in the world, and uh, predictions are China will be by 2025 the largest missionary sending country in the world because God has brought revival and His blessing. And I think even in Australia, a lot of the, I mean, Al Stewart keeps saying to, to us at Rice, you know, what you guys are doing with the, the Asian youth, we couldn't do amongst the Anglo youth. Like it just, so there's strength in, uh, you know, generations of strength in, in for example, uh, Chinese churches. Now it's how to uh, equip, empower, share the vision of saying, look, you know, there are, there are many Anglo neighbors uh, and, and you guys are in touch with them, especially second generation, third generation Chinese 
Koreans. Um, you go to uni with them. You go to work with them. Um, how can you bring some of the blessing that God has brought into your churches, into your, your, your you know, Chinese or ethnic Christian community to reach the people around you, which in, will actually include um, uh, Anglos. So I, I, I don't think we're there, but I think it is possible because of this. But I think that's, it's peculiar to some of these migrant groups where we have seen a lot of fruit over decades and decades and decades, not just here, but also in, in China and Korea. So I, I'd be interested in how that actually goes and how we utilize that, yeah, to, to not then do HUP ministry, but actually push them to do, to cross cultures yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, uh, Africans are being sent to Europe to evangelize. So, yeah. But how has rice changed? Because it's, it's moved from primarily Chinese. It's now much more broader Asian, isn't it? Yeah, it is broader Asian, so we've, we've had a lot more Koreans buy in, and we're trying to, um, look, it's hard, it's called rice, like, what are you going to do? But um, did we change the acronym? Yeah. But we, we changed the acronym, so, yeah, yeah it's what renewal it? and interchurch evangelism. Um, but, yeah, it is hard, like, it is hard to, uh, to break out of that uh, homogeneity. But it's happening? It's happening slowly. Oh. We would like to see it more. Oh. But I think you have to be much more aggressive yeah. to push for it. That's so that's, point, a, that's yeah. hard, that yeah. is really hard. Okay. Right, we need to finish. Can I just ask you guys, uh, if people were wanting to get uh, to read more, to think more, are there any resources that you would recommend on this topic in reaching on Um I really like Mark DiMaz's book on building multi-ethnic, healthy multi-ethnic churches, and he's written a couple of books, and that will open up a whole lot of literature in the multi-ethnic world and how to do multi-ethnic ministry. But he's passionate just multi-ethnic, but you know, socio-economic as well. Yeah, and I do want to commend Tim Chess's book on called Unchurched just in terms of understanding uh, cultural, sub, you know, socioeconomic differences. Mark Demaz, D-E-M-A-Y-Z, no, D-E-Y-M-A-Z, D-E-Y-M-A-Z, Mark Demaz, and uh, building multi healthy multi-ethnic churches. And Tim Chester's Yeah. Basic book on cross-cultural differences that you could, cultural differences rather, you could uh, read in a couple of hours, which is wonderful for helping other people understand this as well, is Foreign to Familiar by Sarah Lanier. And my favorite book on multi, well, being the church in a multi-ethnic community is called Being the Church in a Multi-Ethnic Community. And I can't remember, and it's, it's 2013, it's this year, I can't remember the author's I don't have much to add there, but if you uh, particularly want to understand uh, Chinese culture, and I found it very helpful, is uh, Andrew Hong, who was meant to be a panelist this morning, but he got his times mixed up. Um, he's got a blog, andrewhong.net, um, and he has done a lot of work on Confucianism and those kind of basic Chinese concepts that has affected church life and so on. I found that particularly helpful. Well, can you join me in thanking these guys for their time and everything?